The Nats Chat Podcast Party is coming up Friday, October 13th from 6.30 to 8.30 at Walters. Just like last year, we'll be hanging out, chatting baseball, and watching sports. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing a blast toward left center field. This one is crushed. Young back toward the track at the wall. He leaps and it's gone. Into the Orioles bullpen over the 376 mark in left center. 2 0 Orioles on number 20 this season for Adley Rutschman. Now the 2 2. Swing a ground ball left side past the diving shortstop. Abrams, it's through for a base hit. Mullins will score. Hayes will turn and hold it first, and it's 5 1 Orioles. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, September 28th, 2023, along with BassinSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, at least the Nats did finally score a run against the O's this regular season. The Nats against the O's had been 0-3 with three shutout losses. Make that 0-4 with a run scored, a 5-1 loss at the American League leading O's on Wednesday evening to complete a two-game sweep. But the Tampa Bay Rays did win at the Boston Red Sox 5-0 on Wednesday evening, preventing the O's from clinching the American League East with the Nats at Camden Yards. That would not have been ideal from a Nationals perspective. But the Nats have not been spared a 90-loss season. They now, for this regular season, are 69-98-21 and and over the team's last 29 games. This episode of the Nats Chat Podcast is brought to us by High Bias, the distorted history of the cassette tape out this Tuesday, October 3rd, right as the Nats offseason is getting going, written by Mark Masters. Visit highbias.com for more information. Coming up later in the show, Tim Shover's conversation with former MLB umpire Sam Holbrook, who was the home plate umpire for Game 6 of the 2019 World Series, the game that gave us the Trey Turner play. But Mark, the Nats have three games left in the team's 2023 season. You know, it really wasn't that long ago that the Nats were 61-69, and 69 and we were having visions of a win total in the upper 70s, maybe even 80s, uh, dancing in our heads. But uh, man, those days seem like a really long time ago now. Yeah, and I think back, and I know we did kind of speculate that things might get a little tougher in September, they were going to be facing some tougher opponents that maybe those close games they were winning would flip in the opposite direction. And boy, it has completely gone in that direction to the point where, I mean, I was convinced that 70 wins was a lock 
several weeks ago, that there was no doubt that we're going to get to 70 and had a shot at 75, like a real shot at 75. And boy, all of a sudden, they have to win one of three this weekend in Atlanta to get to 70. And that's no guarantee, even though the Braves don't have a whole lot left to play for, it's still a tough challenge. And especially when this offense is just doing nothing at the plate right now. That was so evident in these two games against the Orioles, all season against the Orioles, and really down the stretch this season. They are having to work extremely hard for every run they get, and that's not a great position to be in. So Mike Rizzo has had sort of a catchphrase, a mantra that uh, he has been espousing in recent weeks, essentially saying this is not a successful season, but this has been an encouraging season. I think that's actually a, a good, healthy way of looking at this season. But I mentioned the record over the last 29 games, 8 and 21. I mean, we'll see what happens this weekend at the Major League leading Atlanta Braves. But, you know, I don't think anyone is expecting excellence from the Nats in this series. So if this ends up being a really rough final 32 games of the season, you're talking about a fifth of the season. Do you think how this season is ending is changing the perception of this season? Or do you think the perception of the season was more or less locked in off the very good August that the Nats did have? Yeah, I don't think it should change anything at this point. I think you look in totality at what they've done this year and more than the wins and losses, how they've gotten here and and who has done what along the way. Now, yeah, I do think about the last week of August or so when the kind of that peak point for them, that nice road trip they had, and then Davey got his contract extension and we were led to believe that Mike Rizzo was on the verge of getting his as well. That felt like the moment that everybody around the organization was saying, yeah, we did it this year. We did what we needed to do this year. Now, they've taken a big steep decline since then, but I don't think that the last month changes the overall perspective. I do also think they have to be careful not to look at August and say, well, that's who we really are, that that's a sign of how far we've come. Like, no, they've made progress to be sure. There've been a lot of positive developments this year, but they've still got a long ways to go. And I hope they recognize that. And I think they do recognize that, that whether they end with 69, 70, 71 wins, whatever that is, this next step that they have to take in 2024 is a much tougher step to take than I think the one they took this year. There's a lot of work still to be done, both in terms of the players that they're going to be bringing in from in-house and maybe out of house, but also just in the progress they make on the field with the guys they already have. Every single one of these guys needs to be able to come in next year and say, I can be better than I was in 2023. Yeah, I mean, the Nats are guaranteed to have made a an at least 14-win improvement from last season. But I think everyone knows that going from 55 wins to 69 wins is a lot different than going from, say, you know, 70 wins to 84 wins or 84 wins to 98 wins. It's funny how that is in baseball, but it's true. I mean, a 14-win improvement for most teams would be celebrated big time. I think in this predicament, you look at it a little differently because 55 is such a low win total that getting to 69 is like, okay, now you're at least in the ballpark of acceptable, but like there still is a lot to be done. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is more of a conversation for this weekend, but I think next season is massive. I think next season in a lot of ways could determine whether this rebuild works or not, because I think now we're still kind of in that territory of it could work, it might not work. You know, there's a lot of things we don't know. I think we're going to have answers on some players and on some things by this time next year. So I think next year is shaping up to be a huge year for the Nationals. But uh, we are not there yet. Uh, Still three games to go for the Nats in this regular season. As far as this 5-1 loss at the Orioles on Wednesday evening. So 
Patrick Corbin put a capper on his season, uh, what does end up being a fourth consecutive bad season for him. Corbin, in this game, four runs in four and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, a two-run home run, and five singles. Issued four walks, recorded two strikeouts, threw 90 pitches over the four and two-thirds innings, 49 strikes versus 41 balls. I do, though, want to salute Corbin for the great defensive play that he made in this game. Bottom of the fifth, bases loaded, one out, and that's down 3-1. The Orioles' best hitter, Gunnar Henderson, is batting. Now the pitch. Swing and a tapper up the third baseline. Spinner, Corbin Fields, backhanded flip to the plate. Out is the call on the force play. Caught by Ruiz on a bang-bang play at the plate. What a play by Corbin to pick it up along the third baseline. For the second out, what a play by Corbin. Now, he then issued a two-out bases loaded walk of Jordan Westberg for a 4-1 Orioles lead. But we'll put that aside. That was an impressive play by Patrick Corbin. It was a fantastic play, an athletic play. We've seen him make good plays in the field before. He is an athletic pitcher and has done a nice job with that. And yeah, that was a nice moment and a big spot in the game. And then everything you know about Patrick Corbin happened right after that because how does he follow it up? He's a chance to get out of the inning, keep the game within reach. And a bases loaded walk is how he follows that. And I think that tells you so much is that he clearly has some ability. This is not a pitcher who's out there throwing up slop and has nothing left and his arm is hanging by a thread and he's running on fumes. That's not who he is. We talked about this last year. This year, he still has good stuff. He still has good starts along the way. He has good moments within starts, but he just has not been able to put it all together with any consistency whether that's within a start, within an inning, or from start to start. And I think that's the maddening part of it. I don't think anybody realistically says this needs to be the 2019 version of Patrick Corbin anymore. That's long since sailed, that possibility. But you wanted to believe that there was a level of competence that he could get back to, that he just has not found. Now, the scary thing is he finishes this year with a 520 ERA, not good, 10 and 15 record, not good, 1.4 whip, not good. But those are all significant improvements from a year ago, which shows you just how far he had fallen. So yeah, he was better this year, but he's still not at that mark where you say, okay, he's a good, competent big league pitcher and he's not what he used to be, but at least you know he's giving you this or that. The only thing he's giving you right now is starts. He's making every start every fifth day. And yes, there is value in that. But boy, it would be nice if he could have just taken that little step further that you said, okay, this guy is not a great pitcher but he's competent. He's giving us a chance. He's at least holding up his end of the bargain. You know, we've become like numb to the Corbin saga. And I think if you're a Nats fan, you're like desensitized to what has happened here. But like, if you're unfamiliar with this and you look at it, I mean, it really is something, man. He was so good for this team in 2019. And now you're looking at four consecutive seasons, each in which he has had an ERA over four and a half, three consecutive seasons, each in which he has had an ERA over five. I mean, that is quite the decline. It is not injury-related. I don't even know that you say it's age-related. I mean, he's not that old. This is his age 33 season. I mean, plenty of guys have been effective as starting pitchers, you know, in their early to mid-30s. And, you know, there are so many guys in baseball, starting pitchers, who have bad seasons, but then come back and have better seasons. I mean, I remember we had the weird thing with Tanner Roark where he would be good in even-numbered seasons and bad in odd-numbered seasons, but he would bounce back from the bad season with a good season. Like, Roark's 2014 and 2016 seasons were really good for this team. His 2015 season was not good, but he bounced back. He got better. 
in, in theory, that opportunity has always been there for Corbin, for him to bounce back, for him to have another good season, for the following season after a bad season to be appreciably better. And that just has not happened. I mean, it really is remarkable. And again, I think we're so used to this now that we can kind of lose sight of how almost absurd this entire situation is and how unpredictable this was. Nobody saw this coming after 2019. When it's all said and done, this is going to go down as one of the stranger careers in baseball history, I think, you know, from somebody who it took him a few years to get going and to really find himself as a big league pitcher. And then he found it both in Arizona and then his first year in DC and was phenomenal and was one of the best left-handers in the game for a couple of years. And then from that to just fall off the cliff, the sustained fall off from the cliff that he's been ever since. I just don't know there are that many pitchers. I think Barry Zito is one of the few I can think of that has something like a trajectory of that. And the common thread there is the long-term contract. And I think that's key here. Nobody else who had the last few seasons that Patrick Corbin had would continue to get the opportunities that Patrick Corbin is getting. But the contract has sort of forced the issue where they have no choice but to keep putting him out there. And we're going to talk about this next spring and into the season. It's going to be his last year on the contract. He's still going to be here. He's still going to be in the rotation by all accounts. If we're still having this conversation come June or July, maybe there's finally a point that we can legitimately say, is he on his last legs? Are they ready to move on? But he is still in the same boat. The organization is still in the same boat. And they're going to talk all offseason about, well, we still think there's more there. We think he can turn this back around and, and be valuable to us. And you just hope that when it's all said and done, he does something that still contributes to this team as they start to get ready to win again. The other thing that's remarkable to me about the Patrick Corbin tale with the Nats is how durable he has been. Like, he might be their most durable starting pitcher since LeVon Hernandez. Like, name me a more durable starter for the Nats since LeVon. Like, I mean, Gio Gonzalez was was pretty durable. You know, there have been some other guys. But, like, Corbin's durability really has been remarkable in this day and age of so many starting pitchers, especially guys as they do get into their 30s, falling off in terms of being able to stay healthy. This guy does post. I mean, he's going to end up leading the Nats in innings pitched by Miles this season at 180, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things isn't a lot, but by today's standards is, is actually, you know, a pretty substantial total. So, like, there's that too. He deserves almost like a pat on the back for that durability because there have not been many Nat starters, certainly in recent years, who have demonstrated that. He has, but that has gone along with, you know, these ERAs and the fours and fives and sixes. And so, you know, it's, it's hard to appreciate the durability because you're not getting good production with that durability. Yeah, look, he has made at least 31 starts in every full big league season, 2020 doesn't count, for six straight years now, topping 150 innings in all of those. And even in the pandemic year, he made 11 starts. I mean, he made every start that year. He, he had nothing. And it's why he's still within the clubhouse commands a lot of respect because he does post up every five days. He takes the ball. He generally gives them a decent number of innings. That The best thing that he did for them this year, probably the biggest improvement for him, honestly, this year was avoiding the blow-up starts. And, you know, a year ago, 31 starts, only 152 innings. This year, 32 starts and 180 innings pitched. That's a big deal. And I think that matters to a lot of people in there that there is value in that. And is it worth $35 million a year? No, of course not. But I think within the clubhouse, they don't look at the contract. They look at the way he conducts himself, takes the ball every fifth day, doesn't complain about anything. There certainly have been opportunities along the way where he could have begged out of a start here or there when things weren't going well. 
has never done that. And for better or worse, he has been the leader of the pitching staff and trying to help some of these young guys learn how to be big league pitchers. And they all say to a man how much they appreciate that and what he has meant to them. And what's also funny too is, you know, you see a guy decline like this and so many times what ends up coming out is, well, you know, there are issues behind the scenes. And at some point there's some lengthy report or piece or article detailing a bunch of stuff that's been going on behind the scenes that's ugly and off-putting, but does explain the decline. We have not had that with Corbin. Like what you just said, every indication is that he's been a good teammate. He's been good in the clubhouse. He's not a malcontent. He's not been a complainer. He just has not pitched well. <laughs> it's just as simple as that. He just has stopped being a good pitcher. Yeah, 100%. And I mean, there is stuff behind the scenes in a good way that he does for them. And I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it. He takes care of his teammates. You know, he's got a lot of money. He's got more money than anybody on that team has by a long shot. He takes care of them in gifts, in just assistance with stuff. He leads a lot of the team camaraderie things that they do. He's kind of a, an instigator of that. Like, sounds silly, but like he runs the fantasy football league that they do. And they look up to him and whatever you want to say about him and his performance, he has been a model teammate through it all, has earned the respect of a lot of people. And he'll always have that 2019 season. And that does go a long way in terms of street cred within a major league clubhouse. Did you listen to cassette tapes? Did you make mixtapes for friends? Then you'll love Mark Master's new book, High Bias, The Distorted History of the Cassette Tape, out October 3rd. It's a fun and engaging look at the heyday of the cassette tape, how it was invented, how it changed music history, and why it's still not dead. Dust off your old Walkman and dig into High Bias, available for pre-order at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever else books are sold. Go to highbias.com for more info. Hey guys, it's Al Galdi here to tell you about another great deal being offered right now by Window Nation to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Window Nation is offering you even more. Uh, when it comes to new windows, Window Nation always gives you more, but now Window Nation is giving you even more, more. <laughs> uh, the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus a lot more. Pay nothing for two full years. Another amazing deal on the great windows that Window Nation can provide to listeners of the Nats Chat Podcast. Save up to 50% with the purchase of a house of windows. You know, even given what has been happening with interest and mortgage rates, Window Nation still is keeping 0% interest for two years. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And tell Window Nation that you want the great deal that you heard about from Al Galdi on the Nats Chat Podcast. Again, the more windows that you buy, the more that you save up to 50% off, plus you pay nothing for two full years. That's 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. And make sure that you tell Window Nation that Al Galdi from the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, 
Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swing a line drive left field. Hayes on the run for this one. Can't get it. Plane in front of him on a hop. Rounding third is Smith. He's coming home, and he will score. Alou holding it first with a single slice the other way down the left field line, driving in his 15th run in the big leagues this year. And that is the first run the Nationals have scored in four games against the Orioles in the season series. It's now the Orioles two and the Nationals one. Alou the tying run at first with two out. Well, we mentioned the Nats offense. It has been a rough go here uh, for a while. The Nats on uh, Wednesday evening, not shut out, but just one run, a mere six hits, a double and five singles, no walks. Uh, the Nats went two for six with runners in scoring position. The lone Nats run came on an RBI single by Jake Alou. He is the Nats starting left fielder and number eight batter, one for three with that RBI single. Alou and Nats one run fifth, a two out first pitch opposite field RBI single to left field to cut the Nats deficit to 2-1. However, Alou made the third out at third base. He was uh, thrown out trying to advance from second to third on a two-out infield single by center fielder Jacob Young. Now the set of the pitch. Swing a ground ball by Young toward the hole. It's backhanded by Mateo. Off-balance throw on one hop. Could not be handled by Santander. Alou's trying for third. The throw there, and he is out. And the inning will be over on that play. What'd you think of that from Jake Alou? Toot bland. We haven't had one of those in a while, but he was thrown out on the bases like an income poop. Unfortunately, and, you know, a chance that one of the only chances they had all night to get something going and he just ran them out of that inning. It's not the only reason they lost. They had, you know, very little else going on offensively, as has been the case far too often. But you can't force the issue like that unless you know you're going to make it. And he did not. Look, the Orioles pitched well. And that has become their calling card and good for them for that. But I keep coming back to this thing about the lack of walks, no walks in the game. We see this night in, night out. They draw one, they draw two. They're last in the league in walks and last in homers, point that we've made over and over again. And we'll see next week when the season is over would be the time that if there were going to be any changes that we would hear about it. I'll be curious if there isn't some discussion at least at the end of the season with David Martinez and Mike Rizzo about the coaching staff and if there are any changes they think could be necessary. And I'm not trying to single anybody out here or suggest I know anything's in the works. I just think you look at in totality offensively what they've done and where their deficiencies are. And I don't think you can get to the end of this season and just say, yeah, we're fine with that. Whether it's a change in personnel, coaching, whatever that is, or just philosophy, whatever that is, you can't look at this and say this is satisfactory and, well, they'll just naturally get better as they get older. There are, I think, some fundamental things about the way they go about their hitting approach that just has not worked and needs significant improvement. So one of the things that became apparent with the Mike Rizzo extension was that part of the negotiations between him and Mark Lerner was, hey, 
those beneath you, what's going to be happening with them, right? And that was a part of those talks. I wonder if that was a part of the Davey Martinez contract extension talks. Now, his deal got done a lot earlier than Mike's got done. And I don't know if in season you want to be telling Davey, yeah, these guys on your staff, uh, they're going to be gone at the end of this season. But I, I mean, you got to think this came up in some form, right? Of, hey, we're giving you this extension but, uh, you know, come the offseason, we're going to have some conversations about these coaches. Do you think that there is an understanding in that regard? I think there's an understanding that there's going to be conversations. I don't know what that will result in. It may not result in any changes. But I've asked around a little bit, and I, the sense I've gotten is nothing's been determined yet. But, yeah, when the season ends, they are going to sit down and go over all these things, as you should do in a good year or a bad year. Let's make that clear. But everybody on the staff, their contracts do expire. Remember, a year ago, we found out they had all gotten two-year deals when they came on. With him, Well, that's not the case. Everybody is, um, you know, contract expiring at the end of this year. And I think you have to evaluate everything. You know, we're talking about hitting her, but you evaluate the pitching, you evaluate the defense, base running, all of that stuff. And you have to get to the end of this and say to yourselves, where can we get better? Where did we make improvements? But where is there still more work to be done? And just because the manager has been re-signed and has been sticking around here for a while. That doesn't guarantee him the right to just pick anybody that he wants on his staff or just to say, we're keeping things intact. I don't foresee an overhaul. I don't think we're going to see massive changes across the board, but I would not be surprised if one or two positions in particular, they did decide to go in another direction. Well, if you're looking for something else to cling to for the Nats offensively on Wednesday evening, uh, C.J. Abrams, uh, he is the Nats starting shortstop and number one batter, one for four with a single and a stolen base. So Abrams now on the season, 44 stolen bases, the most stolen bases by a Nats player in a season since the franchise came to D.C., Trey Turner's 46 in 2017. So Abrams is too shy of that mark. You would think that he's going to get to that. I mean, he can't assume anything. But I think it's tricky with the bigger bases. Like if you have to assess what is the best base stealing season by a Nats player since the team came here. So, you know, you always want to look at total steals, but also the success rate. So Trey Turner in 2017, 46 of 54. Abrams this season, 44 of 48. But I guess we'll have to wait on baseball reference or some other sabermetric site to come up with an adjusted steals number. Like, how do you do the compare and contrast stolen bases now versus stolen bases in yesteryear when the bases weren't as big? I think that's going to be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I don't, it would be fascinating if somebody could actually go back and watch them all and say, well, you know, they've got stopwatches and all these things and say, okay, the smaller bases, it would have taken him. 0.2 seconds longer to get there. So therefore, he would have been out on seven of those attempts or something like that. I don't know what, uh, you know, if it is possible. But yeah, this is going to be interesting. From like 2023 on, kind of like we look at the dead ball era way back when in home runs, we kind of have to look at the same way now with stolen bases. So there is a little different calculation to it. But that said, I was looking at this last week. There aren't that many guys with huge totals in the 30s and 40s and beyond. Everything is up across the board. Yes, more stolen bases and the percentage has gone up for everybody. But it's not like they're just running wild out there and that you've got – this isn't the 1980s where you've got all these guys up in the 70s, 80s and approaching 100. It's Ronald Acuna and then some guys in the 40s. So I think C.J. Abrams legitimately is one of the best base stealers in the league. And the remarkable thing with him, as we've talked about – Almost all of these have come like since July 1st or so, whenever it was that he moved up to the leadoff spot. He didn't steal a lot when he was sitting at the bottom of the order. So I'm really interested to see next year, assuming he leads off all year and he stays healthy and he keeps getting on base. 
I'm really curious to see how far he can take this. He could be a 50, 60 stolen base guy when it's all said and done. Yeah, I mean, he's got the speed for sure. Nats bullpen on Wednesday evening, three relievers combined to allow one run in three and a third innings. Uh, Andres Machado allowed a run in one and a third innings. Corey Abbott, who, if nothing else, does generate some strikeouts, a perfect bottom of the seventh, three strikeouts, all of which were called strikeouts. How often do you see that? And Thaddeus Ward, he tossed a scoreless bottom of the eighth despite giving up a two-out single, then issuing a two-out hit-by-pitch and then issuing a two-out walk. I think we're seeing why Thaddeus Ward never got that start that uh, got talked about for so long. Yeah, they're going to let him start in the Arizona Fall League, and I think they realized that putting him out there for four or five innings against some of these lineups he'd be facing down the stretch would probably not go so well for him. You know, We've touched on this. We'll, we'll see where this goes from here, but he was the number one pick in the Rule 5 draft, and usually I know the success rate of the Rule 5 is not huge, and there aren't that many players that come out of that. But they had their choice to anybody. This is who they chose. They hung on to him all year. You spent some time on the IL, but that counts. And they're going to get to the end of this year, and he's still going to be part of their organization. And they will now have the ability to send him down to the minor leagues next year and, and let him continue to develop. I'm not sure what ultimately they view him as. I think they hope he can be a depth starter for them in the future. There have been a couple of moments this year, but I got to be honest, there have not been many that made you look and say, oh, okay, I see something there. I see what they're thinking this guy could end up becoming. It hasn't been a huge success story. Not that there was a whole lot of reason to believe it was going to be a big success story. But again, you got the number one pick. You had your choice of who it could be. This is who they chose. And it's kind of been pretty middling along the way. And especially in an older guy like he is, it's not a 21 or 22-year-old. I don't know what the future holds for him. We'll see. He's going to get a chance to fully develop next year. But knowing what they have coming and what their standards are going to be for a big league starter, I don't know that I see him becoming a regular big league starter for them in the future. What's interesting with the Rule 5 picks that do hit, especially pitchers, it usually takes a few years. And like an example is this guy, Nestor Cortez. He was a Rule 5 pick, but it took him a while to get going, and he's bounced around. And so, you know, it's like the team that got him in the Rule 5 draft may not be the team that ends up bearing the fruits of the guy. Like it may take him another stop or two to finally get going. The last pitcher for the Orioles on Wednesday evening, Tyler Wells, a Rule 5 guy. And he, for the most part, has been good this season, although they had to send him down to the minors for a little bit. So yeah, there aren't a ton of success stories. And it's usually like something where you got to have patience and you got to develop the guy and you got to decide like, is this guy worthy of developing or are we kind of, you know, wasting our time continuing to go down this path? So we'll see with Thaddeus Ward. Well, we did have some Nats news during the day on Wednesday. The Nats on Wednesday afternoon announced having agreed with their super utility man, Ildemaro Vargas, on a contract for the 2024 season. Now, Vargas was still arbitration eligible, so it's not like this is an extension or something that avoids free agency. But uh, I guess peace of mind just didn't want to have to worry about this uh, come the offseason. So the Nats will have him for at least another year here. You know, they did it with him last year early, but it was the offseason <laughs> that they did it and signed him and avoided arbitration. He made 975000 then. He's not eligible for free agency for a couple more years. So there was no urgency, no need to do this right now. But he was willing and able. And as he described it to us, you know, this is a guy who bounced around quite a bit with several organizations before he settled in here. They love him here. They still view him as somebody who can help a team that gets better here in the next few years as a utility infielder, as a good clubhouse guy, mentor to the young infielders. And so if he's willing to, to concede now that he'll, he'll settle on a number, and I, 
Don't know exactly what it is, but I'm guessing it's maybe slightly more than $1 million for him. It's rare to see this before the end of a season, but both sides are willing partners and they got a deal done. And so cross one item off the offseason to-do list. They've already signed uh, Ildemar Vargas for 2024. Yeah, I mean, he's versatile. They clearly like him. Davey has continued to play him a lot over these final two months of the season. Maybe now we know why, the fact that they were working on a contract and, you know, he's coming back for next season. But I just, I don't know, I view him like I view a lot of Nats players. Like, nice player, but overslotted. Like, Vargas is not an everyday player. And yet, for the last two months, he essentially has been an everyday player for this team. And we just, we know, we've seen him get exposed. And it's not even necessarily his fault, but it's just like, on a truly good team, this guy's not playing every day the way he has played every day for this team, more or less, since the beginning of August. And, you know, it's just, we'll know things are better when a guy like Ildemaro Vargas is what he should be, which is a key guy off the bench, super utility man. That is code for not a starter. He's a guy who comes off the bench and can play various positions. Yeah, 100%. And the hope would be by this time next year that maybe you've got Brady House at third base. Maybe you've got, I don't know, Trey Lipscomb at second base. That's kind of a big question mark. Maybe they go outside, find somebody else. Maybe Luis Garcia puts it together. I don't know. But you would like to believe that by the end of next season, they have legitimate everyday players at those positions. And Vargas, while still here and still getting the occasional start to fill in for somebody, is in much more of a bench role than he has been. You know, you need stopgap players in the interim, guys with a good attitude. Even when they lose, he's always upbeat. They love him for that. More productive last year than he was this year, I think. Did not do a whole lot offensively, but he is very smooth in the field at a variety of positions. I mean, he actually played six different positions this season. Second base, shortstop, third, left and right field, and even pitched a couple of times in emergency. And apparently he's been working on the side on his catching skills just in case they ever need the emergency. God forbid two guys get hurt in the same game. They need him. He has donned the mask, the tools of ignorance, and is learning how to do that. And uh, perhaps someday it will come to that, but hopefully not. Well, he is their designated position player pitcher for when they're getting blown out. Like That has become a role that he has uh, filled on more than one occasion here these last few years. Well, this episode of the Nat Chat Podcast is brought to you by High Bias, the distorted history of the cassette tape out this Tuesday, October 3rd, right as the Nats offseason is beginning, written by Mark Masters. Visit highbias.com for more information. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our website too, natschatpodcast.com, in which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. Don't forget about the second annual Nats Chat Podcast party happening at Walters. That'll be on Friday evening, October 13th at 6.30. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat Podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. Next up for the Nats, their final series of the season, a three-game set at the Major League leading Atlanta Braves. Game one, Friday night at 7.20. And the Nats starting pitcher for that game will be Trevor Williams. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. First pitch to Turner, and a full swing and a dribbler up the third base side. This is going to be a tough chance. Peacock hurries his throw, and the ball gets away. The ball through Guriel down the right field line. Gomes is going to head for third and Turner to second as Guriel's glove got knocked off, and they're going to call Turner out for being out of the baseline. Oh, my. So instead of second and third, they're going to send Gomes back to first, and Turner is out for being out of the baseline.
Pleased to welcome on a former MLB umpire you've probably heard of before, Sam Holbrook, retired umpire who began his career in the big leagues in 1996. Sam is the honorary guest for the Umps Care Charities East Coast Golf Classic on October 16th at Westfields Golf Club in Clifton, Virginia. Sam, we're going to jump right into it. You were at a game that Nats fans remember very, very well. Though the moment wasn't a fond one, the victory was for Nats fans. You were the home plate umpire in Game 6 of the World Series in 2019 in Houston between the Nats and Astros. The famous Trey Turner play. And Davey Martinez is livid at Sam Holbrook. He's saying he's on the outside. Davey is livid. And he wants to talk to Sam Holbrook, who's coming over. Do you remember that moment at all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, one of the uh, bigger calls of, of my career, for sure, that being the World Series. Do you remember your thought process at all? Why did you make the ruling that you did? If you know that that rule of baseball, the, the three-foot running lane rule, you know, it, it says that, that the batter runner has to be within that, that lane uh, in order to be basically protected from uh, having interference called on him. And Trey wasn't running in the lane at all. He, he never was in the lane. And therefore, if you're outside the lane, then you could possibly cause interference if you hinder a play at first base. So since he was outside that lane and uh, basically uh, collided with the first baseman as the ball was being fielded there to first base, it actually, for an umpire, was a pretty easy, uh, pretty easy call to make. You know, I know a lot of people don't understand it, don't want to uh, understand it, or don't want to agree with it. But uh, you know, for an umpire, that was uh, pretty cut and dried in, in my eyes. So you're saying that when you woke up the next day, or when the World Series was over and had a little bit of time, and in the winter time, you stand by your call. You're confident in the call. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, neither one of his feet were in the lane. You're supposed to have both feet in the lane. Neither one of his feet were in the lane. And uh, the second part of it is if you hinder the, the play being made to first base, which he basically uh, ran into the guy, took his glove off and all that stuff like that. Yeah, it was it was a pretty, like I said, pretty easy call to make. Uh, for an umpire if you're sitting there and watching it. I know in the heartstrings of a lot of uh, Nats fans, they didn't agree with it. Uh, there may have been other people that didn't agree with it as well, but for a, a, a trained major league umpire, that was a, a pretty cut and dried call. So Turner is out and Gomes goes all the way back to first and Martinez is steaming, pointing up the line saying this is where Turner was running, right down the line. 